0: Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. All right, welcome back. This is the Finding Backcountry podcast, and this is going to be part two, episode 46, and this is going to be part two of the question and answer episode from uh, 45 that we just did. And so, if you're just finding this podcast, um, you know you probably want to back up and just, uh, if nothing else, just to get a, a reference of all the other uh, questions that we answered and uh, good information that was out there. Um, otherwise, you know, if you've uh, been listening for a while, then you'll know right where we're at. So, um, you know, this this one will probably be a little bit shorter because we you know, we knocked out a quite a few minutes on the other one, just doing some uh, housekeeping stuff and where we're at. And, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just briefly touch on that and then we'll jump into these questions. But, um, so at the, at the time of recording this, both parts of this, um, we were about three days away from leaving and heading up into, uh, Nevada backcountry for our uh, early archery mule deer tag. And so you know, a lot of, a lot of when this podcast dropped is just going to depend on the hunt almost hundred percent, you know, we'll probably be out of the backcountry and the hunt will be over, um, by the time we get to this part two. but maybe not, you know, if we, uh, we mentioned that we had a videographer following us around, um, and we expect to pull some audio uh, from that, that might be good for a podcast episode, maybe, um, you know, hunt recaps, one day or one night or something. Um, especially, you know, after we, uh, if we tag out and, you know, kind of do a recap of the situation or, or the hunt or whatever happened. So who knows? Um, that's the nice thing about this is, you know, we can be flexible and do whatever we want. So we'll just try to keep putting out as much valuable information as we can and, and uh, whatever way it makes sense. So, you know, say real quick, just appreciate all of you that follow along on social media and, put down these questions it, it really humbles me uh, honestly just being honest here for a second it humbles me that there's um, guys out there who a follow along and B care what our opinion is on anything. So I trust me I don't you know I say all the time on this podcast that you know I don't really care if people listen to it and and generally speaking I don't you know on the on the macro scale, I'm just going to do this because I love it. And, and I know that Corey loves, loves talking about this stuff too. That's why I started doing this is I found that I was having these type of conversations with Corey anyway, and we just needed to basically hit record, so to speak. But that being said on the micro scale, like it blows my mind. It like, it's it's like the most humbling thing ever that each individual person that ever asked me a question about hunting or falls, follows along um, comes up and talks to us at a trade show, uh, sends us a message, emails us, um, everything, you know, buys one of our purebred road hunter shirts or whatever the case, like, just like, can't say enough thank yous. And on the micro scale, I care a hundred percent about, uh, you know, each, each person that listens and I appreciate it, uh, to the, to the fullest. So, um, uh, what do you think, Corey, any, uh, any, uh, opening opening words here
1: no i hope i hope by the time people are listening to this that we got a couple critters down in nevada
0: yeah you know this is it man we're in the heat of it and so um you know i know that probably by the time this drops we'll be real close to the utah archery opener and guys will just be chomping at the bits. so uh, man what an awesome time of year
1: i love it man uh,
0: gear dialed day. yep Hit us up, man. If you have questions on anything we've said on any of the previous episodes or the gear or anything, just hit us up. You know, if you're trying to fine tune your, uh, gear list, I've emailed it out to quite a few people. Um, you can email it at, uh, I'm sorry, not at, but, uh, finding backcountry at gmail.com or obviously messages on any of the social media platforms, uh, that we, uh, that we're a part of. So, okay well we're just gonna jump right in and continue on with some of these uh, Q A's and try to knock these out um, the next one that we got to was from and again this is an Instagram handle and these are in no particular order of topic or anything and some of them would get a little bit redundant asking kind of the same thing but they're all a little bit different so at head and west <laughs> that make sense head and west head and west. Uh, is asking, do you use a stove with your shelter? Uh, I assume he means our uh, Kafaru teepee, our eight man teepee shelter, and what time of year are you taking it? So, the first thing on this one, we just got our hands. Uh, we haven't had a real hunting season with that teepee and the stove yet. Um, we've had basically a couple campouts in the yard, a couple. Uh, like fishing trips and, you know, just summer camping trips and then maybe one or two shed trips. Um, that being said, I can give you a pretty good idea of when we will bust that thing out and or when we'll bust it out with the actual stove in it. So first of all, depends on where you're going, depends on uh, the elevation, depends on the type of hunt. You know, September down here in Southern Nevada for example, would be a completely different September middle of September up in, uh, Idaho for elk, for example. So, um, uh, but generally speaking, like once it hits September is when I think we'd get serious about packing that teepee in somewhere. And especially with the stove, right?
1: Yeah. And that's a, like, we kind of got that out of necessity. we spent some, we spent some cold nights, like mid to late September up in Idaho. Um, even with zero degree bags that are, you know, it just gets pretty brutal. You get wet, you get, you know, it, it makes it definitely a lot more comfortable and helps you stay back there longer. But yeah. I think September, I think you nailed it for at least the lower 48. Yeah.
0: You know, we've thrown them, thrown around the idea of packing that shelter in even on these early hunts without the stove, just for kind of storing gear and stuff like that, uh, which would be nice. You know, We've got our tent systems dialed pretty well, uh, meaning each each guy has their own, you know, basically two man tent now. And I think all three of the well, Jason's doesn't. But, um, you know, we've got so much vestibule space in those and the, the two men's in general anyway, are big enough to store all of your backcountry gear inside the tent itself um, during the day while you're out hunting, which is nice because some of those early hunts, like you're still dealing with, you know, rodents and the spiders and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, we just, if we were to pack that eight man shelter on these early hunts, like it would just be over overkill. We just wouldn't need it. Um, and we, and we definitely don't need the stove. Um, in there, but you know, those September hunts, like you, you know, you're traipsing through, you know, whatever your pants are getting wet from the dew, um, or, you know, you hit a rainstorm or a, you know, even a snowstorm that, that time of year. And it, you just can't beat being able to go back to a tent like that and, um, fire up that stove and dry off, dry off all your gear. For me, uh, that stove, unless it's like a super, super late hunt, like November up on top of the, Wasatch or something like that um, with you know a foot and a half of snow. Like that stove to me is not something that you're gonna rely on to stay warm through the night. Um I'm just gonna have a sleeping bag, my zero degree bag or whatever that um I don't have to rely on that stove to actually survive the night. But for me it's that, you know, especially later in the year where the day the the days are short and the nights are long, you got plenty of time when you get back to camp for an hour or two to fire that stove up and dry everything out. And so that to me is really like, you know, you just got to ask yourself, you know, what's kind of, what, what time of year, what elevation, what temperature range, um, you know, and, you know, is it going to be nice to just be able to dry clothes out and kind of heat my body back up before I climb into bed. So anything else on that, Corey?
1: No, I, I think that moisture is a big part of that. You know, you're at least, I mean, probably not New Mexico and Arizona, but everywhere we elk hunt in September, we're getting rained on almost daily, Yeah, you know, and if it's not rain, it's snow, so drying off, getting warm before you crawl into your sleeping bag, that's a, it's pretty advantageous. Yeah,
0: keeping boots, uh, you know, somewhat thought out or whatever. So and you know, and, and then that being said too, maybe uh, you know, I I wouldn't run it all night because it just takes too much to stoke that thing all night, really. And but firing that thing up for thirty minutes in the morning too, while you're getting dressed, oh, oh man, yeah. that is just, yep. Yep. that is the cat's meow right there. So being able to stand up too. Oh, being able to stand like, up. Can you imagine? Yeah. Okay, uh, moving on at. San underscore outdoors s a h n outdoors. Uh, these guys follow us for a while, so I, uh, I'm glad to hear from them. Um, is there a secret? Is there a secret mule there? Killing powers that come with a stash, meaning a mustache. Um, until last year, I was not a believer, but now I am. That there is some sort of hidden power in a mustache and mule deer hunting. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things it's, you got to have some faith cause I can't exactly explain what it is, but it's definitely there. It's definitely there. There's... What
1: are you rocking? What are you rocking facial hair wise coming into Nevada?
0: Okay. So with my, I have a certain calling in my church and it's, there's kind of an unwritten expectation that I am clean shaven. Um, and so, usually what I do is I just hate shaving. So I'll go all week with a little bit of scruff and then I shave every Sunday before church. Um, that being said, so I, I, uh, actually ran a little scruff today. Uh, it's, it's Sunday today and I ran a little scruff at church so that I could have, um, I, I'm going to bust out the mustache for the hunt.
1: And so, (laughs) yeah, no I think Fu Manchu probably has like the strongest mule deer killing powers for sure elk killing
0: but. yeah that's more like uh to me that's more like you know road hunting uh powers is having a Fu gotcha. Manchu or whatever what what we're doing this is def- It's definitely mustache territory so
1: okay you say so uh,
0: it doesn't matter for you because you can't grow one anyway right
1: yeah, I can I can grow a mustache. It's just a pretty poor one. So,
0: <laughs> well, is that really a mustache then? <laughs> yeah,
1: it is. It's it's just a oh. forky mustache.
0: Okay, <laughs> we'll grow what I want to see. Um, uh, at Pistol underscore Sand, Pistol Sand, uh, is asking what separates the men from the boys when finding big mule deer over one seventy. Okay, Question. yeah, it is, it's a, it's a big, big question, mostly because there's just so many variables that can take place, what, you know, what type of, uh, what area of the country are you talking about hunting and all that, and so you, that's the first thing is you got to narrow down kind of um, finding what unit, you've got to, you've got to be able to find units in certain states that hold uh, big mule deer consistently, not that you can't find them, uh, the random one or the, you know, the one every so often on those kind of, you know, um, off, one-off units. But typically, you know, there's just certain units that are known for or consistently hold those big bucks. And you got to kind of know how to find those. Um, how do you find those? I don't know. You either hunt them yourself, you someone that you know hunts them, or frankly, like you just pay attention on social media. Um, you can kind of get hunt. a, what's that?
1: Go hunt. No.
0: <laughs> it, it does Ta- take that with a grain of salt. Um, I just, I, I, I laughed a little because, you know, there's certain units on go hunt that I've personally hunted and seen guys pull, you know, whatever, 190, 200 inch deer even out of, and they, you know, it's rated as like a 170 plus or whatever. So, um, you know, they, I think they've got to be somewhat, uh, conservative there, but anyway yeah go hunt um, some of these uh, you know subscription services the epics um, stuff like that epic outdoors um, you know again um, Boone and Crockett records can give you just a general indication of a county or something like that um, you know a lot of states a lot of states Nevada for example my home state they'll post up like percentage of bucks in a unit that were killed that were four point or better. So when you turn in your hunt report, which you have to turn in basically every hunt, um, you have to indicate, you know, what size did you kill and what size of deer was it? You know, how many points were on the left and how many points are on the right. And so they track that in some States, uh, and and you can, again, don't take it as doctrine or gospel that you're going to go in and find you know, every buck you're going to see is going to be a four point or even that every four points going to be over 170, but it just gives you a really good baseline. And, you know, if, if unit a only has, you know, 10% of the bucks being killed on, you know, an early August high country hunt that are four point or better. And then unit B in the same hunting, uh, time has, you know, 60% of the bucks that are four point or better. Like, you know, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to know that that second unit's going to be better. So, you know, you can just key in on little things like that, that the statistics of the States, um, you know, will will throw at you. Uh, last resort, maybe I would, you, you could maybe get away with calling a game biologist. I've never called a game biologist and asked size of animals in an area. Um, more so, you know, I'm just looking for general, um, you know, where's this type of feed or what, you know, is this trailhead going to get me into this spot or whatever. Um, but, you know, those game biologists have a pretty good handle on that. And if you really don't ask for specific areas and you're just asking for kind of generalization, like, you know, generally is this unit going to hold 170-inch deer? They, they might spit you out some valuable information. So I don't know. What else, Corey? What else separates the men from the boys? You know, that's I, – I just – rambled on about finding units to begin yeah, with
1: yeah. got to be in a unit where there's 170 inch deer for starts yeah but and then just knowing knowing the terrain knowing the habitat and that that just all comes with experience the guys the guys who are consistently doing it are guys who are experienced i mean you know you don't walk out of the womb just being able to kill bucks every single year good bucks and then guys that you know, they're dedicated to it. They're, they're just doing, you know, Jason's Jason is always thinking about, you know, how do, how do I kill big bucks? You yeah. Know, it's, it's, it's always on his mind. It's, you know, he's not, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and, and so two, two things guys, that in my opinion, from my experience, guys that are consistently, consistently finding, Big mule deer over 170, for example, which is what the question asks. Um, they're either doing one of two things. They're consistently hunting an area that they've hunted year in and year out. They're not unit hoppers. Okay. They they learn in a unit like the back of their hand because they hunt it year after year after year after year. And not that they don't move eventually or from time to time, but they they they're probably given a unit, you know, three to five years or whatever on average of hunting it. And so the next year they just know they don't have to waste their time um, finding where the glassing points are. They don't have to waste their time finding where the water holes are. They don't have to waste their time finding where the migration routes are. They they just they've hunted it multiple times, multiple times, and it might not even be the same year. You know, like Mark's a good example. Uh, Mark Smith, um, you know he he's going back to country that he hasn't hunted for probably quite a few years. But guess what? Those deer still using the same migration (laughs) routes. Are you still using the same freaking water holes, you know, and he's keyed in on that. And he's probably going to go tip over a respectable, mature buck. Um, So he's going back to units that he knows. Here's the other caveat. If they are unit hopping, you know, I can think of one guy in particular that stands out. They scout their minds out these guys that are consistently fine and big mule deer, especially when they're jumping from unit to unit to unit or state to state to state. And they're, do, they're in a new country, new unit consistently. They are the guys that spend two or three or four times the amount of days scouting as they do hunting. And that's, that's a hard part for guys to swallow is they all want to find big bucks and then they show up one day before the hunt opens And they hike in and they glass and they, you know, waste three of the four day, three of their seven day hunt, you know, learning the terrain and learning the country and learning where the water is and then learning where the deer actually hang out. And then they've got them you know, you never find them in the first basin or the second basin. It's always the third basin that you look in. And so, you know, by then it's, you know, anyway, you get my point. These guys who really uh, can find big bucks consistently and it almost doesn't matter what unit they scout religiously they're scouting hard all summer if they're in a unit in a state like utah where it allows you to run trail cameras or throw down licks or whatever um they're they're doing it they're doing it hard and consistently and, and uh, I, putting in the time scouting
1: well and they're not just limiting they're not trying to like kill a mule deer in one specific way you know everybody that fly fish is like you want to catch life you know you know, you want to catch trout on a dry fly you know that's how you want to do it but if that's the only way you're ever going to fish trout you're not going to catch all the trout you could and you look at a guy like mark and if he needs to hang a tree stand he's going to hang a tree stand if he needs to put a salt lick down he's going to put a salt lick down if he needs to track something or he needs to spot if he needs to or, pick
0: up a know. rifle he'll pick up a rifle yeah. if he needs to pick yeah. up a bow he'll go with a bow if he needs to hunt on the You know, the Navajo res, he'll go hunt on the Navajo res. Like these, that's a, that's a great point. Like these guys just utilize every resource they have. Well, and
1: nothing's, you know, if it's within, you know, if it's within their resources and within their time and whatever, I remember talking to Robbie Denning at the show this last year, he's talking about flying one of those little cub planes, hiring a pilot to fly over a unit. Report that he hasn't even drawn he's like trying to decide if he wants to hunt it and he's you know got his binos up there and i remember thinking like this guy's hiring a pilot to fly over the you know and robbie denning's very you know he's blue collar He, you know he works for a living and he's hiring a pilot to fly over and look at look at this unit yep. like well that's that's why he's got a bunch of boon and crock and mule deer up on his wall yep you know
0: one, one last note that I made um you know guys that I know that consistently find these big deer um you know I I said that they're they're sticking to units um but on the flip side um even if they're hunting a unit you know that season that they already know they are always on the look for the a next spot right so they're always like they're going to have their you know say they're hanging you know 10 trail cameras that year They're going to hang nine of them in a spot that they've already know, and they're going to hang a 10th one in a new area. Or, you know, maybe they've hunted this mountain range and then they want to go look into this other one for one scouting trip this year, and then they're going to go back and hunt the same spot that they, you know, they're always on the lookout for that next spot where they they can um, find a buck or find a spot or whatever. I can think of one mule deer in particular that we killed that was in an area that, Like, I'll be honest, like, Jay, my brother had the idea to even go look in there. I would not have even, it never would have crossed my mind. You know, I'm the guy that can wake up and eat um, the same breakfast for six months in a row every morning. You know, I just don't need that change. But Jason's like, man, what else is out there? Like, and so he's looking for that variety, looking for those new units. We go um, locate a buck in an area that, again, like, unless you just, Always looking and always scouting out new areas, you probably never would I never would have stepped foot in there. And we tipped over, you know, a 31-inch buck in there one year. So
1: every everything regresses to the mean and it's it's just one of those things. Like you find this great area, it's got great mule deer. It might be good for a year or three or five years, but it's not gonna be good forever. And if it is good forever, it's gonna get hard to draw. And then all of a sudden you're not gonna be able to get a tag for it. So yeah. the guys who are successful are always looking before that, you know, they're shifting gears before the Hill and they're always trying to find that moving target. Cause it's not just, you know, nothing's going to stay put the way it is right now.
0: You know, and while we were talking about this um, on the flip side, I can tell you one thing that, and again, we're talking mule deer here. So this is specific to mule deer. One thing that guys who consistently find big bucks don't do is it's not always backcountry. Nope. There's so many, so many times, and so many guys that I know of, and so many bucks that I've seen, that are 500 yards off a road, or a quarter mile off a road. And guys who consistently find and know how to find big bucks do not care where they're at. They will find them where they are. They're not trying to find them where they hope or where they want them to be. They find them where they are. You know, um, they might, again, if the feeds there, you know, we, we talked about this. What are the three main things a a mule deer needs? They need feed, cover and water. Um, and a, and a little bit of privacy, but I'm telling you a mule deer buck can feel like he's hid 50 yards off a road and lived there his whole life. Um, if there's the right cover or terrain or whatever, or he utilizes it in the right way, he might not, he might be nocturnal or whatever he has to do but guys who consistently find big bucks don't always find them 10 miles deep in the backcountry. So. Okay. Anything else on that one?
1: No, I think we covered it. We were kind of answered like politicians, but I don't no think so. For that. No.
0: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, that's, that's as, that's as real as you can get right there. I don't think yeah. there's anything. Um, at J period. Woo. W <laughs> I don't know if it's woo or not, but, um, versatile, what's the most versatile hunting tool that you never leave without and why I'll give you my answer real quick. Cause, uh, this is going to be a tough one. I think I'm going to steal Corey's, but, uh, most versatile hunting tool for me is just simply like a GPS watch. Um, and why just because of the capabilities of it. It tells me where I'm at. It tells me where my camp is at. It tells me um, any scouting points that I've collected over the years or at home on Google Earth. Um, it tells me, you know, when I've marked a location for a water hole or a bedding area, it, it holds all the information and helps keep me safe. And so it's it's the most versatile hunting tool that I have, aside from just, you know, like your weapon and
1: stuff like that, the obvious ones. What about you? Yeah, I I think that, you know, that kind of nails it on the head. I think the tool part, like, without being able to ask him, you know, specifically, like, what direction he wanted to go. One thing that is actually a tool that I've been really happy with bringing into the backcountry is I bring my Leatherman Skeletool, uh, which has been, you know, it's got, like, some pliers and some cutters. I bring, they make, like, a little bit kit for it. Um and you can do anything with that thing, man. Yeah. I, I absolutely, and I don't know if that's the direction he wanted to go, but that Skeletool CX, like it's got a knife on it, it's got pliers, it's got, and thing's handy, and it's lightweight.
0: Yeah, it's tough tough to say what he is actually looking for there, but that's my answer. So, you know, so, something like Optics is probably more valuable than my yep, GPS, absolutely. but it's not versatile at all. It's, it's pretty one dimensional. You know, the only thing I'm going to use optics for really is, you know, glassing. So I can use that GPS watch for a lot of different things. Okay. At jumping legs mm, at jumping legs, best way to find a hunting buddy if many of your friends don't hunt, so, and you're a new hunter, so, you know, you got a bunch of friends who don't hunt and you're new to hunting. How do you uh, find a hunting buddy? What do you think, Corey?
1: Um, it's, that's, it's tough. I just, uh, I got married about a month ago and I, I we, we joke all the time. It's kind of harder to find a hunting buddy than it is to find a wife. And it, uh, I, you know, I, I think a big part of it is, and, you know, you brought this up, it's everybody wants to jump in. They see guys who are already hunting, who are already successful and guys want to jump, you know, kind of jump into that boat. And that's a tough thing to do. You know, it, you know, cause they already have their hunting buddies and it's, it's kind of a closed circle. So I, I definitely think finding somebody whose personality and lifestyle and you know passion match up with yours and somebody who you can get along with for a week in the back country and truly enjoy and know you know when they're down you can pick them up and vice versa and um you know not they might be an awful hunter now but you know you guys can grow and learn together and then when you guys do get to that point it'll be a lot more enjoyable for you yeah. um that that that'll take years but you know it uh you know, sometimes, you know, if you can find that person and both turn into hunters, um, you know, I think that's a better route than trying to find somebody who's already gone through that with people. Yeah. You know, I, w- I was very fortunate, you know, that you and I cross paths and, you know, we kind of, I kind of dove off. And I, I also think, you know, you always have to be willing to i'm i'm just as happy if not more happy when you kill something and i think it's vice versa that it uh you know you gotta you gotta be really really ready to put in the work and stuff without being able to put an arrow or a bullet in something first you know i went a few years without killing anything when i was hunting um and it was you know some of the best years of hunting i've ever had yeah
0: yeah, I agree. I'll reiterate that. Um, you know, same, same answer. Um, it's, it's easier to just find someone who, um, shares your, you know, kind of your same outlook on life or you guys, you know, you know, you get along. Core beliefs. What's that?
1: Your core beliefs, your yep. core values.
0: Yep. Because that man, that in the back country is just, it's the glue that holds the whole operation together, especially for a back hunt. You know, if it's just a truck camping, and you know you're not, you know, your buddy can come and go as he pleases, and he can show up and go if he's not having a good time or whatever. He can anybody could jump in their truck and, you know, be home in an hour or whatever. That's different. Um, I'm a lot more willing to just hunt with anybody, um, frankly, in those situations because you know it's not it's not such a commitment. But man, if you're if we're talking backcountry hunting and you know going in with with a new hunting partner uh, man know them know them before you uh, commit to that um, or just you know be be uh, you know be ready to be flexible or be the guy who uh, gets along with everybody because you know you'll, you'll go through a couple hunting buddies before you find uh, some good ones. so but generally some places too, you know I'll mention just I mean like you know jump jump into your local archery shop um you know there's there's probably someone else in your similar situation that's just getting into hunting um head up to your uh, local archery range um you know the local shooting range with your rifle um you know going film tour yeah yeah going to these events you know going to these um man talk about like like if you're around the utah area um, the hunt expo, just thousands and thousands of guys in there that are, you know, looking to just talk to people. And, you know, we get it all the time that, Hey, I'm just getting into hunting or whatever. I mean, there's, there's just guys out there. And if you kind of submerge yourself in the, in the community, uh, people are generally, um, you know, good and, and, you know, you can, you can kind of, uh, you know, you, you can meet a lot of people that, uh, you know, you might want to, uh, hunt with and, that way, so
1: you gotta you gotta have the same priorities and passions too. I don't know how many times you call me or I call you and I'm like, hey, what do you think about this hunt? It's like, I oh, don't, yeah, let's go do it, you know. And yeah. it, uh I could see it being pretty frustrating if you were, you know, pretty passionate about the whole deal and your hunting buddy wasn't, and every time you call them, you know, you only can hear no so many times before you just stop asking. So yep. finding finding that passion is important too. Yep.
0: Okay, at jensjohnson85 asking, have you ever thought about venturing to North Dakota? Hashtag, where is that? Um, exactly. Where is that? Exactly. No, um, I, I know vaguely, you know, yes, I've thought about it. That's about the extent. Um, it's crossed my mind because honestly, anywhere that I see someone kill a decent-sized mule deer or an elk or whatever, I'm like, huh, you know, I'm thinking about hunting there someday, but that's as far as it's gone with North Dakota. It's it's uh, you know, not that we hunt back country every time, but it's just not like super back country like we get out, you know, out here um in Nevada or Colorado or Wyoming or whatever um in the high country and so it's it doesn't really entice me that way. I know there is uh, some pretty good mule deer uh hunting there, but no, I haven't thought about
1: it. We, we'd be driving past it'd be one yeah. of those things proximity too like there's states that border you know Utah and Nevada where we live that we would love to hunt and we're we're spread too thin as it is and yeah. so adding a state that's you know 16 18 hour drive from us would be stepping over a dollar to pick over up a dime yeah
0: we're pretty insulated um with incredible hunting in just about any direction you want to go but especially going to north dakota so
1: white tail don't bugle which i know north dakota's got some great white tail and i've i've chased a few good white tail and they don't bugle very loudly
0: yeah you know um and i i was just sitting down with my wife tonight um going through kind of a a budget, you know, for this, uh, this little class that we're taking on personal finance. And, um, I was, I was adding up all my, I won't, I won't mention how many dollars I spent, um, on bonus points and tag fees and app fees and permits and everything. Um, because frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's too much, but, (laughs) um, what I did add up is like eight states, eight different states basically all the states, all the Western states, you know, I'm building or buying or applying for some form of bonus point in eight different states. Um, Idaho, Montana, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. Holy moly. So yeah, once I blow through all those states and I have no more deer to hunt, then I'll think about North Dakota. So at Gregor, Gregor underscore Brandon. Um, if your area doesn't have nice basins to glass around in, what other areas do you look for? So again, this is tough because we don't have a lot of context here. Are we talking deer? We talk in elk, we talk in antelope, we talk high country. We talk in August, we talk in November. There's a lot of question marks, um, on a, with a question like this, but, um, let's just kind of talk what, what we typically hunt, um, kind of more early season, uh, higher country. And we'll say uh, mule deer, uh, because most, most of the glassing that we do is mule deer, not elk. Um, if your area doesn't have nice basins to glass around and what other areas do you look for? So if I was hunting an area and I, I have like, I, you know, I hunted um, Well, this wasn't high country or early, but last year in New Mexico, um, a mule deer tag in areas that you could glass a few spots, but it was, it mostly wasn't that. So, um, you know, maybe looking for migration routes if it's later in October, if it's, if if we go back to the high country, um, you know, maybe looking for bedding areas, uh, definitely looking for feeding areas, definitely looking for water holes. Um, and so those, those are kind of the core, other core areas, um, that I would try to look for, man, it's, it's tough to answer this without having a little bit more context. I don't know. What do you, what are you thinking, Corey?
1: Yeah, I think it just goes back to that, you know, food, water, shelter, like find that in the smallest area. And then, then you're just looking for sign. If there's good densities of any animal, there's going to be you know, there's going to be signs that there's animals there. And so, um, you know, with elk, a lot of guys, and, you know, the guys up in, like, Oregon and Washington, I don't know how they do it because guys down here don't want to put up with it. But, like, when you get into, like, I'm thinking, like, South Slope UNA is, like, popping in my head. But when you think of, like, densely, like, timbered area, like, that stuff holds awesome elk. But guys down here hate hunting it because you can't sit there and, like, it's mentally much tougher because you're not seen out because you have to be like fifty yards away from them. Yeah. Um, well, it, you know, it's it's like you know how to hunt it. It's,
0: right. You know, you be successful. It's like the guys up, uh, you know, the the, uh, um, you know, up in the upper Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, on the coastals and stuff like that, where they're just hunting that super thick, um, you know, almost jungle type stuff, and you know, they're just, their tactics change and they, they love it, you know, but, um, they just, you know, when you can't use your glass, you got to use your feed or you got to, um, you know, they're usually hunting elk and so they got to use their calls, but even the calling techniques change and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know what, generally what time of year is a big one, especially, well, even for elk, but especially for mule deer too. Um, you know, mule deer, for example, Anything up until the end of August or about the time that those mule deer start, um, start shedding their velvet. Um, even if there's not high country basins, you know, they're going to be more apt to be out in whatever openings there are, you know, uh, and staying out in the open longer or more often around the first part of September ish, uh, the first week in September when they start shedding their velvet things change for a mule deer and they, they become a little bit harder to find because they are more apt to dive into those, um, thicker, heavily forested, heavily wooded, uh, timber areas because they don't have to worry about their velvet knocking on trees and stuff like that. And so, you know, then, then you have that time, uh, like October for mule deer that every, uh, mule deer hunter hates because it's just like, so, such a dead time for mule there. They're, they're kind of staging for a rut. They haven't moved out of the high country maybe, but they're still buried in the timber. Um, they're just really, uh, prepping, you know, they're not chasing does yet, but they might not even be with their, they might move away from their bachelor uh, groups once they drop that velvet and they're just, you know, it's, it's tough time to find them. They might be on their migration. They might not. Um, but you know, you just have to consider all of those things. You know, and then obviously with mule deer, it gets a little bit easier, you know, depending on the, the elevation and the type, uh, area of the country that you're in, but, you know, into November and December, obviously, when they really start uh, pushing does around and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and then, and then, you know, I put down here the, your weapon choice. Um, you know, that just, that changes how I hunt. Um, you know, I, I think of like growing up hunting down here in Southern Nevada with rifles in low low land, you know, kind of rolling, low rolling country um where the only tactic was, you know, we we didn't glass, we didn't we never glassed. I didn't even like you didn't have binoculars. We ne- we barely carried binoculars when I was a kid. We definitely never carried a spotting scope. Um and so the way that we uh the areas that we were looking for in those cases was where, you know, if First thing in the morning, um, you know, you might hit some some open burns or feeding areas or something like that. But we did most of our damage as a kid growing up and my dad and everybody uh, in the middle of the day just because we were willing to stay out and keep hiking. And so at that point, you're just looking for, you know, a thick timber patch uh, where, you know, there there's probably bucks bedded and then, you know, attacking it from a spot where, you know, you're going to get a shot as that buck blows out of that uh, timber patch when you're at, you know, 200, 300 yards away, and then gives you that one look back before he heads up over the top of the ridge. And then you're cracking a shot, leaned up against the side of a dead tree limb or something. Um, You know, and so again, they got a bed for the day, they got to eat and they got to water. And so I don't care if I have basins to, to glass in or not the, you know, the only thing that being able to glass in basins accomplishes is just, I don't have to hike there. You know, the the principle of why I'm looking there or where I'm looking is no different. Um, if I have to go there with my feet or if I'm able to go there with my glass. So
1: I think in either scenario, like to simplify it, it's just knowing animal behavior. And I mean, we spend two days on every elk hunt the first two days trying to figure out what part of the rut they're in. And same with mule deer. When we bomb into a mule deer and sometimes it's simple early August, like they're going to be in there summer phase still but like if you know if you understand mule deer or elk behavior when you bomb into a hunt it it's worth you know that's worth everything because you're going to be able to figure out how to hunt up then
0: yeah yeah i mean like uh back to new mexico last year you know um even though that was early november it was you know it's it's down south enough that you know bucks just aren't they're not rutting yet they're still in their transition between their their, uh, summer grounds and their migration routes on their way to their, you know, breeding. And so, you know, at that point, the whole tactic changed. Um, you know, we, we couldn't just find does and hope that a buck was going to be with them cause he wasn't. And so then it went from, you know, okay, now we've got to stage up in this spot and, uh, push this Canyon or, you know, glass this, uh, you know, even though it's not a basin we're still going to glass this little migration route down this Canyon and try to catch one or whatever. So, Anyway, a lot of variables there. So, Okay. This is actually the last one that we've got on this. Um, and we're, we're making pretty good time here. Um, P a nature boy, two, four, three, I assume is what that is. P a all one word P a nature boy, two, four, three. Um, he kind of gives a scenario here of sounds like his hunting situation this year, hunting public wilderness DIY, which is awesome uh, mule deer in September. And he's asking spike camp, where should he put his spike camp high or low? Uh, he mentions that he's picked a spot two thirds of the way up. Do we have any tips for a newbie? So this is kind of in line with what we were just talking about. So good, uh, good segue here. Um, again, mule deer in September, he's in the wilderness so i assume he's in relatively high country um you know i think he said it was in colorado so again i you know i'm assuming you know anywhere from 8000 to geez i don't know 13000 feet i guess but um mule deer in september it's getting tougher in september in my opinion because of what i just said um he doesn't mention if he's hunting with a bow he doesn't mention if he's hunting with a muzzleloader or a rifle technically in september In Colorado, you could literally have any of those three. (laughs) I I believe, you know, the archery tag goes through the month of September. There's a muzzleloader hunt that's in the middle of September. And some of the rifle uh, tags open the middle of September. So um, I'm not sure what weapon he's got. But again, it doesn't matter because in my opinion, I would still be high. Um, Again, this is generally speaking, and we're assuming that this is kind of a, you know, a back country, uh, you know, 10 to 12,000 foot peak type of area in Colorado, I would still be high. Um, those deer definitely in September there, it's not like they're moving off chasing does or anything like that. They're not heading unless now an asterisk here, unless there's just some, the most, unless we get the most crazy, you know, if he's going in the end of September and we got the most crazy amount of The blizzard of all blizzards in early September or mid-September right before he heads into hunt, then maybe, you know, if you get three feet of snow up in the high country, maybe. Maybe it starts pushing those bucks down because they have no choice. And they're not necessarily coming down to rut at that point or chase does or even to start their migration by their own choice. They're just coming down to survive. Um, but if he
1: can be up there in a three season tent and a zero degree bag, those deer will be up there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Generally speaking, like, you know, that time of year, I mean, those, those deer would have to, um, have knee deep in snow to really push them off. Probably. I don't know. Um, but I, so I'd still be high, assuming, assuming normal circumstances, I'd still be high, um, in September. If it's the second half of September, man, I'd be picking apart, um, just those thicker uh, shoots and draws that have the, you know, the thicker timber in them that's next to the the feeding areas and spend a lot of time picking out those shadows in those, um, in those, in that thicker timber. Cause I think they're going to be spending more time in there. Um, they still got to get up and feed and, and stuff like that. So you might be able to catch them, but, um, yeah, early, early September, they're still generally all still in the velvet. um, you know, that it gets a little easier because they're probably still bachelor herded up. They're probably still up high. Um, you know, just get to a glassing point and find them. I still wouldn't be two thirds of the way up though. Um, I like to be all the way up. Um, not all the way, all the way to like, you know, if there's a 14,000 footer, um, in the area, I'm not going to be right at the tippy top of that 14,000, but I like to be just, just within, I don't know, generally speaking, like what a couple hundred feet in elevation of my glassing point, maybe you think?
1: Yep. Mark, yeah. Mark always says you get to the top because you don't, you don't approach deer from below them. You approach them from above.
0: Right. I mean, you know, and again, it depends that, that depends with me, like with a bow, almost hundred percent, if it's a rifle, I mean, you know, you can, you can hunt, uh, some of those high country basins, um, or shoots or whatever your country you're in, um, by kind of, you know, poking around the, the lower edge of it and glassing up and, you know, cause you got, you know, two, three, four hundred yards, you can crack off a shot. But, um, yeah, especially with archery and even muzzleloader in Colorado, because, uh, you got the open sights and stuff like that. And so you're just limited on your range. I'm almost always going to be above them. So I wouldn't be two thirds of the way up. I'd be three thirds of the way up, generally speaking. And man, close with this, any tips for a newbie? (laughs) Yeah. How much, how much more time you got? Huh? Yep. yep. (laughs) No, just, just enjoy it. Um, tips for a newbie. You know, I don't know how newbie you are, but, um, don't get too caught up in whether you kill or not. Just try to be there, be in the, be in the moment, um, and be in the experience and just learn as much as you possibly can. Um, you know, man, me just starting out as a newbie, I would say, you know, do what I did and be willing to just, just get the experience of tipping an animal over and getting it out of the backcountry. And so, don't be so worried about, you know, oh, I've seen all these big bucks on Instagram, and I gotta get, you know, I gotta shoot a hundred and eighty-five inch book, uh, typical or whatever. You know, just, just tip over the first uh, legal legal buck that you uh, feel good about, and and just get that experience, especially if it's your very first time. So, but okay that is all the questions Corey. do you have any uh what's your last parting words
1: well good luck everybody everybody should be rolling uh here in utah and most of the states out west so yep. good luck on good luck on all the hunts and enjoy it have fun be safe send us some pictures <laughs> some down critters. yeah
0: we do we love uh love hearing from you uh, appreciate, you know, any comments or interaction on our posts. It really means a lot. And, um, yeah, just can't, can't say enough. Thanks. Thanks for all your, uh, time listening. And hopefully this has been valuable and hopefully, uh, you know, it's at least gotten you fired up for your hunts or whatever. So appreciate it. And, uh, till next time, we'll see you.
1: Have a good one, everybody.
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding back podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit FindingBackCountry.com.